Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed and humble honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Terence Lyons. We will be discussing his recently published book, The Puzzle of Ethiopian Politics, published in Boulder by Lynn Rehner Publishers, 2019. Terence is professor at the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. Terence, uh, it's a privilege to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate for the op- I appreciate the opportunity to to speak about uh, this book. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? The 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 way the best way to tell that I think is uh, chronologically, and it might be somewhat surprising. A lot of people expect, because I've spent so much time researching Ethiopia that I must have, you know, grown up in Ethiopia, or I have a dear friend from Ethiopia. I have plenty of dear friends in Ethiopia now. But when I started as an undergraduate, I took a little bit of everything. I didn't really know what I wanted uh, to do. And I took an African uh, history class, and I found it uh, fascinating. And I wanted to continue to learn more about uh, Africa. And then in particular for that course, and then also a couple of other undergraduate courses, when I had a chance to pick a topic to write on, I kept going back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia for some kind of, it, it was just uh, to use the title of my book, it was a puzzle that I could never quite figure out and therefore constantly of interest. So uh, when I went to graduate school, I chose Ethiopia as my dissertation uh, topic, Uh, did dissertation research in Ethiopia in the late 80s, and I've been going back uh, regularly uh, since then. So I've been, uh, you know, my my, my primary uh, research focus has been on Ethiopia uh, ever since uh, the late 80s. Let me maybe put that in a slightly different way in that I've had a range of kind of theoretical questions that I've been interested in from foreign policy to regional conflicts to to uh, uh, the role of elections, for example. And Ethiopia is the place I keep going back to uh, to investigate these questions, to gather the data to help me answer uh, these questions. So that's what, what brought me to this book. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I mean, what ins- what in- what, ins- what inspired me, or maybe you know, motivated me at least, was that um, I was trying to figure out why in Ethiopia, after a very very prolonged uh, civil war in the 
late 1970s and 1980s developed into a country with a very, very strong ruling party. You might think that after war, politics would be chaotic and there'd be fractures and so on. And that is true in many cases, but not in Ethiopia. And so I had the the hunch really to start with that there was some link between the way the war was fought and the institutions, the organizations that fought the war and the political outcome. So I hope people get that, uh, you know, understand the importance of kind of uh, the nature of conflict shapes the nature of post-conflict, post-war politics. The second goal or 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 reason for writing this book is I wanted it to be a book that uh, complicated the story of Ethiopia for general readers. A, a lot of people, I mean, there's lots of specialists, lots of Ethiopians doing research and saying lots and lots of wise things. But there were also at the more popular level, uh, uh, you know, more, more, you know, popular stories or even. Uh, you know, a, a presumptions based on some experience uh, that have shaped Ethiopia. And I wanted to be able to say to folks like that who had a chance to read my book, you see, what you thought was both true, but then there's this other thing that simultaneously is true. And Ethiopia operates on, on, on many, many different levels. So Ethiopia is not just a story of, say, you know, uh, uh, famine and war. It's a story of incredible uh, creativity um, in, the, in political and economic and, and social life. And those two things are both true. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And I wanted to be able to, in that way, uh, break through some of the maybe conventional wisdom around Ethiopia. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Uh, I think, I mean, it's in some ways, touch back on those two points that I that I just made in terms of uh, of, of the motivation uh, of, of, for the book. I wanted to do two things, I think. One, I wanted to write a book uh, that helped the readers understand these transitions from war to peace and why there is such variation in those outcomes. Many wars, uh, af- af- when the war ends, the country becomes you know, uh, you know, know, very chaotic, if you think about someplace like, I don't know, uh, Afghanistan, uh, if you will. But in other cases, after the war, there's a very strong government, not always a democratic government, but a very strong government. I think that's the case in Ethiopia. I think it's also the case in Rwanda. And maybe for a period of time, I would have made that argument for uh, Uganda, maybe is, is, is not quite as strong as it used to be. And so what I thought was that, well, and then related to that, most of the research on this war to peace transition at the time when I first began to think about it uh, was mostly on cases where the war ended in a negotiated settlement and there was often a UN peacekeeping mission. And so the question was, how does... uh, uh, you know how how does the how does the UN and the international community shape uh, the peace process for good or, or or less good? In the case of Ethiopia, the international community played a relatively minor role, and that's because the insurgents, the rebels, basically won and didn't need a negotiated solution. They won the war. They didn't need a big UN a peacekeeping operation because they were the dominant party, the the, the winning rebel group, which was. Uh, 
uh, a coalition of groups led by the Tigray People's Liberation uh, Front. So I wanted that kind of story of understanding how the nature of civil war shapes the nature of post-war politics, uh, and particularly the importance of what happens, uh, the, the cases where war ends in victory rather than negotiated settlement. The, the other goal for the book was to have a more of a uh, it, not an introductory book, but a book that somebody uh, who was, let's say, uh, had been working in international development or diplomacy or international business, but was going to Ethiopia for the first time and didn't really have much background on Ethiopia, could pick up and read and say, okay, now I have some idea of the history. Now I have some idea of the society. Now I think I at least have some guidelines as to how politics works and for the book to serve that purpose uh, as well. You didn't need to be to worry about my, you know, conceptual framework around war to peace transitions in order to benefit uh, from the book. So those were the kind of two different uh, role, uh, uh, goals I had in writing this book. How does your research advance our understanding of authoritarianism? What can Ethiopia's experience contribute to debates about authoritarianism? Yeah, no, it's a it, it is a, one of the things that I hope uh, the book uh, contributes to and some work that I've done since the book examines it in in further ways. One part is to understand that, um, in, you know, in terms of formal institutions, Ethiopia, like many other authoritarian countries, has lots of the institutions, lots of the things that you might associate with a liberal democracy. They have a constitution, they have uh, basically a Supreme Court, uh, they have regular elections, they have political parties, they have you know media, I mean, a variety of different uh, forms uh, of, of media, not just state media. But those institutions are used in ways so that the dominant party, the same party that won the Civil War, uh, is able to remain uh, you know, a dominant. It's never in any threat from an election or any threat from criticism in the media or any threat from what an independent court uh, might do. Uh, and so it's an example of uh, an electoral authoritarian regime. Indeed, there are elections. Talk about them in the book, a number of them. In fact, the 2005 election, which was relatively competitive at some at some length, uh, but with the exception of that 2005 election, uh, the ruling party won close to 100% of the seats in all of the other parties, with the opposition largely uh, boycotting because they were they were harassed, the leadership was arrested, uh, and so forth. They didn't feel the the playing field was sufficiently level. So I think that Ethiopia, as a case, helps us understand the question of electoral authoritarianism. It also helps us understand a kind of rebel to political party a transformation. I mean, if you think about it, those are two very different, uh, one way of thinking about it, a, a, a rebel organization, a fighting organization uh, is one is, is organized in one way and a political party that's going to compete in elections and, and run a government and be responsible for you know schools and roads is presumably a very different uh, organization. But what I think the Ethiopian case 
demonstrates is that there's a lot of continuity and the kind of hierarchy, the kind of ways of thinking, the kind of understanding of the role of the party and the role of the people, the role of elections and, and, and other things remains, uh, there's more continuity than, than change there. So even though the rebels became the ruling party, it was still kind of the same movement. It was the same leadership that thought the same way and had the same goals and so forth. Uh, and so ending the war did not not transform the nature of politics in Ethiopia. Can you describe the distinct features of Oromo nationalism? What light oh, does your great. book shed on it? Yeah, I, I said at one point um, that if you understood what was going to happen uh, in Oromo uh, politics or in the Oromo region or the Oromo population, you probably had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen in Ethiopia. And the way I reason why I said that, maybe not everybody would agree with that statement, is because the Oromo are significantly the largest group. They are also the group that cuts this huge belt across the middle of Ethiopia, going almost all the way from Somalia uh, to Sudan. Addis Ababa, the capital, is surrounded by the Oromo region. And so if the Oromo region is doing well and the Oromo people feel that the government is uh, representing them or, or delivering on their, uh, their interests, then Ethiopia is in, in good shape. If the Oromo feel that the government is not doing that, then Ethiopia faces a great, a great trouble. The Aroma story goes back uh, a long way. In fact, it's a fairly controversial history that I that I won't get into. But uh, in the late 19th century, uh, Ethiopia's imperial leaders uh, moved into the Aromo regions in the basically the southern parts of Ethiopia as Ethiopia was expanding. Ethiopia had been a state that was kind of a northern highland uh, state in the mountains of places like the Amhara region and Tigray region, and it moved south into regions like the Oromo region, but also the Sadama region, the Somali region, other uh, places in the south that often had a very different uh, cultures and very different uh, ways of understanding uh, the state, different religions, different languages. So the Oromo were incorporated, many of them were incorporated as uh, uh, as the uh, through a military occupation. Uh, uh, military leaders from the north came, uh, took over the land, and the and the Oromo uh, farmers became a kind of uh, you know peasants or serfs on the overlord's land. At the same time, some other parts of the Oromo uh, nation, the Oromo people, and uh, other parts within the geography uh, uh, reached in uh, reached deals with the Ethiopian state, where they agreed to play, pay you know tribute in order to continue to have some politically autonomy. And so the Oromo are very kind of mixed. Uh, you know, their, their history is very is very mixed. It includes both uh, you know, significant numbers of Muslims and Orthodox Christians and Protestants, increasingly uh, evangelical uh, Protestants. And so over top of that, there was this kind of a robo-nationalism constructed by uh, intellectuals uh, who and, and politicians who thought that their Oromo-ness was part of why they were being marginalized. Uh, and they had to create a sense of Oromo-ness, uh, you know, promote the, the speaking and the writing of the Oromo 
uh, language uh, and aroma cultural uh, practices uh, as a way to resist the imposition of government of, of power authority from non-aromo groups, particularly Amhara uh, and Tigrayan groups. Can you describe the history and evolution of the Aroma Liberation Front? How has it changed, evolved, and adapted since its inception? In the in the late 1960s or early 1970s uh, was a time of great political uh, uh, turmoil uh, in Ethiopia, particularly at Addis Ababa University, but even at other, even going down to high schools, uh, there was a a uh, a, a shift to thinking about Ethiopia's problems in uh, Marxist-Leninist terms. Uh, this was partly because some Ethiopians were returning from college campuses in Paris or, or Columbia or Berkeley, where they'd been exposed to some of these ideas. And then when they went back to Addis Ababa, they interpreted the, at this time, imperial rule through this uh, through, through through these ideas and became a very, very powerful student movement. It's often when you're writing even today about Ethiopian uh, politics, the uh, the heritage or the legacies of the Ethiopian student movement still loom, uh, loom large. So the Aroma Liberation Front came out of that kind of discussion or those those. Uh, uh, that 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 ferment of Ethiopian uh, students and intellectuals uh, trying to figure out how to understand the nature of the Ethiopian at that time empire as a way to understand why are we so poor? Uh, why do we not have the kind of political rights that other people in the world have? Uh, and what can we do about it? So the, Aroma, the, the people who formed the Aroma Liberation Front saw that one of the pieces of that is to, 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 to foster, well, some Aromo formed the Aromo Liberation Front because they thought the way to uh, undermine these, these structures of injustice and what they would call imperial uh, uh, domination, you had to organize the Oromo uh, first and foremost. And it was a, uh, you know, th that resonated with an awful lot of Oromos. At the same time, the Tigrayan people, Tigrayan students in the first instance, created the Tigray a people's liberation uh, front, a, a similar movement of trying to say, first, we have to uh, mobilize the nation for self-determination, and then we can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to deal with other uh, issues uh, later. So the Roman Liberation Front always, I mean, initially, let me put it that way, initially uh, supported the idea that there should be independent self-determination for the Romo uh, state, that only when the Romo had their own state uh, could they be free. Uh, and that, as I said, that resonated with a lot of Oromos, particularly, I would say, in, you know, in the kind of uh, intellectual and Oromos uh, outside of Ethiopia, in the United States and in Europe and so on. So there was this regular kind of discussion about what next for the Oromo. They, however, compared to the Tigray People's Liberation Front, they were never very effective as a military force. Uh, and they were always internally divided. They were always a process of fragmentation and schisms and so on. And that is in part because, as I said in my last answer, I think the Oromo nation building is a very different and more complicated process than Tigrayan nation building, because Tigray nationalism has historical reference that they can build upon, uh, and maybe just bad leadership, uh, or or that they faced a greater uh, greater repression. Um, 
they did fight against Mengistu and the Derg as, alongside, or at least parallel to, the Tigray People's Liberation uh, Front. But in 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 uh, in 1999, when the TPLF and its coalition called the EPRDF, we, we can get lost in initials, but I'll try to keep it to a minimum, uh, took power in Addis Ababa. The OLF was also struggling, but in a much less uh, in a smaller area, they had, they had liberated some area along the Sudanese border, but not much else. As the transition went on, they became uh, further marginalized, and they were in the opposition for most of the time since from 1991 uh, to 2018, the period of the EPRDF, really the period uh, that my book uh, uh, covers. Uh, in in 2018, there was a transition to uh, within. Uh, the ruling party and the OLF, which at that time had been in exile in the neighboring state of Eritrea, came back to Ethiopia and is now a registered uh, legal political party in Ethiopia, but its leadership has been arrested or under house arrest and, and has faced lots of uh, 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 continued oppression. And so it did not, for example, participate in the last election. And so the Oromo Liberation Front as an organization is is kind of uh, uh, is suffering from fragmentation and from a ruling party that is not providing them with the space to mobilize. Can you describe the Oromo People's Democratic Organization, the OPDO? Yeah, the the uh, the uh, the other side, not the other side, uh, an alternative Oromo organization from in in the period of contemporary Ethiopian politics was this Romo People's Democratic Organization, OPDO. It was created by the TPLF, by the Tigrayan rebels, so that they could have a instrument to uh, move into the Oromo regions. There was a time when the TPLF was moving out of Tigray and into other parts of Ethiopia. And they said, hmm, being the Tigray party and trying to you know, liberate the Oromo, that's a problem. Let's see if we can help create an Oromo wing that will be our partner in this endeavor. So they created the OPDO. Uh, they created it at first among uh, Oromo prisoners of war that the Tigrayans had captured, saying, look, uh, we're looking for Oromos who are willing to fight with us. Are you willing to help us form the OPDO? And some who you know, were drafted or forced into the Ethiopian army were undoubtedly very pleased to do that. They weren't being forced uh, to join uh, the OPDO. So the OPDO has been part of the was part of the governing coalition that ruled from 1991 until 2018. Uh, it was initially very much a junior partner because it had just been created in 1989 and joined, I believe, the the, the what became the ruling coalition in in in. Uh, uh, in 1990, with the TPLF had a much deeper uh, history, it had trouble because the. OLF had been around longer and in some, in some ways had kind of seized the uh, the flag of Oromo nationalism, making it harder for the OPDO to argue that they were the uh, pro-Oromo nationalist party, or at least they had competition uh, for that claim. But over time, uh, you know, when the, when the transition in 1991 becomes, you know, 2001, 2005, 2010, uh, a whole generation of Ethiopians, of Oromos, who have no memory of the, of the Civil War, but recognize that the OPDO was a very powerful uh, party because it was a partner in the ruling 
a coalition and was able to, uh, that that was a good path for advancement. So ambitious young Aroma men and women were joining the party, were cooperating with the party, and it became a pretty effective, or much more effective uh, political party by the mid uh, 20 teens, uh, 2014, 2015. Uh, and so you had those two different Oromo uh, political parties that competed, one within the ruling coalition and one outside the ruling coalition. And that has been uh, part of the challenge, I think, of Oromo politics, even up to this day. What do you mean by the term rebelocracy? How does yeah, it explain rebel- Ethiopia's political realities? Yeah, uh, rebel, rebelocracy is actually not my term. I borrowed it uh, from somebody else who developed it to, to describe uh, uh, Colombia. Uh, what I mean by it is that rather than seeing a civil war and a rebel movement as solely a question of the military, there are, I mean, what kind of insurgency, what are their strategies, how do they get guns and so on? It's all about the war. Who are the, who are the officers? Who are the soldiers? How do they recruit people? At the same time, it is a political organization that has to govern. It has to manage the territory, administer the territory uh, that they control. They have to have relationships with other, with neighboring countries and neighboring uh, organizations. Uh, and that's so that there is a kind of rebel uh, governance uh, or, or, you know, that that during a civil war, rebel groups govern, the, as do governments, right? So there's both the, the government in Addis Ababa was governing, but the OLF was governing. And more importantly, the TPLF was governing. And they govern in very different ways, sometimes more consultation with civilians, sometimes with more, uh, more brutality. Sometimes they have advantage of being able to seize resources like... Uh, you know, diamonds or, or or monopolize the drug trade. Other times they have to rely upon uh, the local citizens, you know, the, 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 the groups that they're, uh, the, the, where they are engaging in the struggle. So to understand that process, not just as, you know, what was happening militarily, but simultaneously, what was happening politically? How did the political party, how did the rebel organization resemble the political party? How did rebel administration of liberated territories resemble a state? And in that way, we can better understand the transition because the transition is based on, uh, post-war, the transition from war to peace is based on these precedents, uh, these models, these experiences of wartime governance, the rebelocracy uh, or rebel governance. Uh, so, so that's why I think that's important. Uh, there's increasing research in people who study civil wars uh, looking at why rebel governance, rebelocracy, if you will, varies so much from case to case. And I was trying to think about the Ethiopian case in those terms. What new insights regarding the Ogaden War between Somalia and Ethiopia does your book present? How are the ramifications of this war felt today? Yeah, so the the war, it's called the Ogaden War, the war at one level is between the the country of Somalia and the country of Ethiopia. At another level, it was a a proxy war with the Soviet Union uh, coming in very heavily on the Ethiopian side after previously being significantly uh, engaged on the Somali side. And it was the Somali government's effort to take over the Somali inhabited region of Ethiopia. So there was Somalia, the state, 
it's not you know, before the Civil War. There was a Somali state head, you know, capital, uh, Mogadishu. Siad Bari was the president, and so on. And then there were Somalis who lived within the territorial boundaries of Ethiopia. And some of those Somalis wanted to be part of uh, Somalia, the state, and the Somali state wanted those Somalis to be a part of their. A nation state. And so it's a very, this was, this goes back before the EPRDF, and it's kind of just a background to explaining uh, the war, uh, the civil war to come. But there was a very uh, serious war in the, in the late 1970s between a new a revolutionary government called the Derg, a military Marxist uh, regime that was, uh, had to fight on multiple, multiple fronts. It had to fight in Eritrea, what is now the independent state to the north of Ethiopia uh, and in the Ogaden. And it was, you know, it was a, the Somali armies occupied a significant part of the Ethiopia, what is now the Ethiopian Somali uh, state. And the Ogaden National Liberation Front continued that struggle after the Somali army had been uh, pushed out by the combined forces of Ethiopia and uh, the Soviet Union and Cuban troops. Uh, after the Somali army was pushed back, they created this Romo National uh, 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 Romo National Liberation Front to continue the struggle. It was a small organization, kind of sporadic hit and run, largely operating in exile, eventually being based in uh, Eritrea. It was uh, popular among or, or had a significant base of support among some in the uh, the Somali uh, diaspora. In 1992, when there were elections, this is after now the Civil War, when the EPRDF was was the uh, de facto government, uh, the, 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 the ONLF, the Ogaden party, ran in local elections and won, uh, and then asked for self-determination, for independence for the Ogaden region, and then their, 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 their uh, their the regional government was disbanded and the powers in Addis Ababa said, no, that's not what's going to happen. Now the, the Ogaden National Liberation Front has become a civilian, well, returned from Asmara as a political party, has participated in elections in legal and, and nonviolent ways. The party itself has kind of uh, declined in power and so the Somali regional politics is, is 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 very interesting. And after a very violent period in the Somali region, there's some uh, some reasons to hope that there were at least uh, things that you can look at in the, in the in the Somali region to show a progress. A lot of money is going in. The politics is much uh, better established. Uh, competitive politics. Uh, the capital of the Somali region, uh, Jijiga, is had seen a lot of investment. And so, in that way, the uh, Ogaden National Liberation Front is kind of a historical uh, player in this earlier type of struggle uh, within Ethiopia in that form is not as relevant in Ethiopian politics today. Can you tell us about the Western Somali Liberation Front, the WSLF? Who yeah. has led and supported this movement? What roles has it played before, during, and after the Ogaden War? 
the um, at the time of the Ogaden world, before the Ogaden war, the Somali government was supporting the self-determination uh, for Somalia. That was the, uh, uh, the, the in part, the set of ideas that the Ogaden National Liberation Front came out of a kind of a pan, uh, uh, Somalia claimed to uh, represent the populations of Somali people, not only in Somalia, but in the country of Djibouti, in northern Kenya, and in eastern uh, Ethiopia. So the Western Somali Liberation Front was the effort by the Ogaden, I mean, by the government in Somalia to say that there, that this territory was Western Somalia. It wasn't part of Ethiopia. It belonged to the Somalis. And in the same time, it was very active at the time of the Ogaden War, uh, Less significant as time went on because uh, Ethiopia successfully uh, uh, militarily occupied uh, the Ogaden, uh, the, 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 the Somali region of Ethiopia. And then politics in the region transformed uh, further when uh, various Islamist actors in Somalia uh, began to try to be involved in Ethiopia. So the question of Somali nationalism became very different when the Somali state collapsed and, you know, a, a nationalist, I mean, an Islamist began to become a much more a prominent uh, feature. What do you mean by encaderment? <laughs> Can you explain? Yeah, it's actually a term that was coined by uh, Christopher Clapham, who I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, a very senior uh, British academic of uh, of Ethiopia, uh, and whose work I've I've drawn on considerably. And 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 what what he was interested in, and so what you saw in Ethiopia, and I share this view. That's why I use the term. Is you saw this mat this political party that had millions of members. It had a youth wing that had millions of members, a women's league that had millions of members that had offices in every town seemed to be everywhere. And so you might say, you know, this is a this is demonstration of a very popular party. Um, uh, but in what uh, this encadrement term suggests is that no, but the party was not about reaching down to the grassroots for ideas and participation and so on, but rather to capture or to pull those people into structures that you could then control. So once you joined the party, then they knew where you were and then they could keep uh, you know, tabs on you. And for some small amount of money, maybe that you would play uh, a certain role. So it was all about controlling the people, particularly the countryside, rather than uh, creating a a space for people uh, to, you know, express their their wishes. So, so, so that's what I that's what we mean by that. It was a encadrement to to create cadres. You know, in a in a Marxist party, you have cadres rather than members. They are uh, 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 under the control of the party, under the discipline of the party, under the hierarchy of the party, and that's what the EPRDF uh, did. Uh, after 1991, it absorbed all the other uh, social, uh, virtually all of the other social structures and turned them into uh, individuals, into cadres who were then uh, dependent upon the party. Can you describe the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Front, the SEPDF? 
Can you describe its leadership and its supporters? What is its role in Ethiopian politics? Can you describe its history and evolution? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I think I mentioned the uh, the Oromo People's Democratic Organization being formed kind of in the last months of the war before the TPLF uh, uh, took took over the TPLF and its allies uh, took over uh, Addis Ababa and and the war ended. The, the TPLF didn't have any act, never fought in the southern region. That was the, the other side of Ethiopia. It had its own things uh, going on, but realized it was going to have to govern uh, southern Ethiopia. Southern Ethiopia is a is a mosaic of something like uh, the numbers change, but I don't know, 50 or 60 different ethnic groups and languages. Uh, so the ruling coalition the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front created the Southern Wing, the Southern Nations, uh, the, the the you know the, a, a a Southern Wing equivalent to the Oromo Wing, or at least functionally filled the same space as the Oromo Wing to be there. Uh, uh, you could say, uh, I, I think I would say partners. Some critics might say they were they were puppets of the ruling regime, but they were the instruments certainly through which the ruling party governed and administrated this vast a uh, southern a uh, southern region. And it was always, yeah, I think, yeah, I think I could say this. Uh, of the four parties that were in the ruling coalition, it was the weakest, in part because it was always so divided with its own internal competitions as different uh, ethnic groups, you know, vied for uh, uh uh, you know, authority and, and, and power within uh, the movement. In um, in 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 2018, this is just the very very end of my of, of this book, which is largely about the EPRDF. But in 2018, the EPRDF was uh, was disbanded, and a new party created that's called the Prosperity Party. The uh, Amhara wing of the old ruling party, the Aroma wing of the old ruling party, and the Southern wing of the old ruling party joined the Prosperity Party. So there is no more Southern People's Democratic uh, Liberation Front, but rather there are Southerners from a variety of, of different uh, ethnic groups. So there's Garage and Hadia and, and, and so on, uh, are now in uh, the Prosperity Party as individuals rather than in their old way as coalition partners. Speaking of the Hadia, can you tell us about the Hadia National Democratic Organization, the HNDO? Can you describe its leadership and supporters? What role does it play in Ethiopia's politics? Can you describe its history and evolution? Yeah, the, the, well, the, the in in the time when the ruling party was winning, uh, you know, 80-90% of the seats, there were a few small parties that had successfully uh, found at least a little bit of political uh, space and were able to mobilize and in some case win uh, seats. The Hadia are an example of that. And they competed in local elections in 2008. They won a few seats in 2010. So it was one of the few and quite small examples of, look, there are non-EPRDF politicians and non-EPRDF parties that are able uh, to operate. But on a very small scale, the Hadia are a very tiny fraction of, of, of the Ethiopian, uh, you know, uh, Ethiopian broader uh, a, a population. Um, but 
they were they played an important role, I would say, in that they were able to speak out and demonstrate, speak out against the limits that the EPRDF was putting on politics, demonstrate those limits often by being uh, forced out of, you know, having their offices closed or having their leadership uh, harassed and so on. And so it, it's a party that's important, not because it's powerful in and of itself, but it provides a way to understand how the powerful EPRDF uh, operated because, you know, uh, the, the EPRDF, which was incredibly powerful, was very unhappy with the tiny bit of opposition that the Hadia and National Democratic Organization could uh, could operate. Uh, and, you know, another another way it might have happened. You say, why do you care about them? They're less than 1% of the population. Let those guys elect whoever they want to, you know, 99% should be enough. Why do you need 100%? But there's something about the nature of, a, a, you know, this kind of Marxist-Leninist vanguard party where that if you disagree with them, then, the, then you're questioning everything. And so it was perceived as a threat. Can you tell us about the Zemene Mesa Fint period? between 1769 and 1855, also known as the Era of the Princes? Yes, I, I'm glad you noted the uh, dates because this goes back really at the very beginning, uh, really before the creation of the modern Ethiopian states. Uh, the Ethiopian uh, uh, kingdom, the, the early emperors were based in the Northern Highlands and they were typically very, uh, you know, hierarchical, top-down, you didn't question the king or, or later the emperor. Uh, and that's the way that politics uh, uh, operated in the way you might imagine kings and princesses, princes in, uh, you know, uh, a medieval uh, Europe, uh, but it was it was usually centralized. There was one person who, because of his power, uh, was able to demonstrate uh, you know superiority. The era of the princes, however, was uh, the exception to that rule. Really, it was a period in which there were competing uh, princes, uh, competing political actors, without an overarching political uh, uh, you know structure, uh, and this. Uh, this what was a time, therefore, when Ethiopia was very weak because it didn't have uh, a strong leadership, and so th this this image of the of the era of the princes is is used in contemporary Ethiopian political thinking to imagine either you know, we don't need a strong state, it'd be fine if we were a bunch of uh, much smaller states on the one hand, and others who say, that would be terrible. That would be the end of everything. We can't. We must be united. We must have, uh, a, you know, clear and powerful uh, a leadership, or else we'll go back to the anarchy that was the era uh, of the princes. So you still, you know, th th this still echoes through contemporary Ethiopian political debates, as like, you know, when Ethiopia is in crisis, the uh, people say, "What do you think? Are we going back to another era of the princes, or will the government be able to uh, keep this?" Uh, you know, under control and maintain order. In light of what you just mentioned, this question is hypothetical in nature. If Ethiopia were to disintegrate along the lines of the former Yugoslavia, what would be the consequences for the Red Sea region, for the Middle East, for East Africa, and for Sub-Saharan Africa, if disaffected regions, mistreated states, and maltreated populations were to secede 
What would be the ramifications locally and internationally? The, uh, the there were uh, this there are today and, and even more powerfully in the perhaps recent past uh, a, a fair number of, of political movements that favored uh, self determination. Eritrea, which is now an independent country, had been governed as part of Ethiopia, and it did successfully uh, you know, separate and got recognized as a country. Uh, South Sudan left uh, uh, the rest of Sudan. The northern part of Somalia calls itself a self-proclaimed independent uh, state of Somaliland. And so it's not impossible. These ideas do circulate in, uh, in the Horn of Africa. Um, I think on the Ethiopian case, it would, it would certainly increase uh, instability. We see this in in part when you look at South Sudan, which has seen it became independent, but has seen prolonged conflict uh, since then. Uh, if you had an independent uh, Oromo state or an independent Amhara state, just to name two of the biggest states, I think you pretty quickly have competition for power within the Amhara, within the Oromo. These aren't unified, you know, homogenous uh, uh, groups, uh, and it would be harder rather than easier uh, to manage those conflicts. A second uh, challenge is that a lot of these groups go across borders. There were Oromo in Northern uh, Kenya, uh, for example. There are Tigrayans in Eritrea uh, and so on. And so the region would have to sort out that yes, you are the independent state of uh, Romo state, Oromia, where, the in, where you have joined the independent state of Somalia. We talked about that with the Ogaden uh, a, a question. Um, and you know, but, but what, what would be the ramifications of that as neighboring states had to reorganize uh, how they how they were or how they worked. Fundamentally, I think the, the reason why this kind of uh, dissolution of the state would, would, would increase rather than decrease conflict is that every border of every state is contested. Right now, let's just say, go back to the Oromo example. If the Oromo said, we want an independent state, an awful lot of people would say, well, part of what you say is Aroma was part of my homeland. You can't have that bit. Or no, 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 uh, you, you can't have uh, Addis Ababa, even though you completely surround it. That's a multinational uh, uh, capital city and, and, and other places, the city of Dirdawa, city of Harar. There'd be all of these, there's enclaves of Amhara speakers and people who identify as Amhara within the Aroma region. And so what you would do is you would, you would unleash a whole series of very complicated uh, uh, conflicts. The Yugoslavia example is instructive in part because of the degree of ethnic cleansing before they became independent states. So there were not as many uh, you know, Croats and Serbia anymore. They were before the war, but after the war, uh, not so many at a, at a, at a horrible, at a horrible uh, human cost. Uh, I actually don't think that the country, there was, you had a hypothetical, but let me just say one last thing on it, is I don't think that's likely. Uh, Ethiopia, the threats of Ethiopia's collapse have been around for a long time, and yet Ethiopia uh, generally um, uh, muddles through um, even the Oromo, which used to be uh, fiercely for self-determination, are now mobilizing on a different uh, basis. They now want a fair share of Ethiopia, not to leave Ethiopia. I told you about how the Ogadeni National Liberation Front has largely become part of the Somali regional political uh, competition. Uh, and so I, I, my, my guess is that while... Uh, 
there are lots of Ethiopians who will make the argument of self for self-determination. Uh, and there's often advantages to positioning your politics in that way. Uh, I'm not sure it's likely uh, to happen. Can you tell us about the Sedama liberation movement, the SLM? Yeah. What grievances and sufferings among the Sedama people has it sought to address? How has it evolved since its inception? Who are the leaders and supporters of this movement? The Sadama are a much smaller uh, population, much smaller uh, people than the uh, the Oromo or the Amhara uh, or the Tigray, but they are also an exception to the story I told earlier about how the South became incorporated into the ruling party that they were uh, that they had not seen. Uh, the armed struggle and were not really mobilized. Uh, the Sadama people who were in the southern part of Ethiopia were part of the Sadama, uh, were part of what was called the Southern Nations, Nationalities, and Peoples region. They did have a, a, a an armed uh, resistance uh, to Mengistu. Small, but 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 uh, it is incorrect to say, as I maybe left the impression in my first answer about Southern Ethiopian politics, that nobody was mobilized. The SLM, the Sadama Liberation Movement, was. The Sadama have had this separate identity, have uh, their incorporation within into the Ethiopian empire, did not uh, end their sense of being a Sadama. Now, to move the story beyond where my, my, uh, my book ends, uh, Today in Ethiopia, uh, different zones within what used to be the Southern nations, nationalities, and peoples regions have created their own new regional states. They're not leaving Ethiopia, but they're creating new states. So rather than being part of this uh, amalgamation or coalition that was the Southern region, they are now becoming their own states. And those Sadama were the first to do that. They demanded the right to have their own state after not being very happy about it. Eventually, the Ethiopian government said, well, they have the right to do that. Uh, and they did. And they're now a regional state like the Amhara state, like the Oromo state, like Tigray. There is a Sadama state. And there's also uh, the, all, basically all the rest of the uh, SNNPR has broken up into new states, not independent sovereign states, but new what we would call states in the United States. You know, so it's like West Virginia leaving Virginia uh, during during the Civil War. They didn't leave to become an independent country of West Virginia, but they were no longer under the uh, uh, under uh, Richmond's uh, uh, control. So it's more like more, more like that that's happening, and the Sadama region was the first to do that in part because the Sadama liberation movement had built this kind of narrative and symbols uh, and a history of resistance of we are different, we deserve to have our own uh, autonomy. And that comes out of that earlier period of struggle that where the SLM, while small, had a, you know some kind of resemblance uh, to the TPLF or the OLF, the uh, Tigray and Oromo uh, uh, insurgent movements. What are the primary features of ethno-federalism in Ethiopia? Who are the beneficiaries of ethno-federalism? 
who is marginalized by ethno-federalism? Boy, that's a that's a that's a very large uh, question. Let me see if I can uh, unpack it in a couple of ways. So, uh, under uh, Emperor Haile Selassie, and then under the military Marxist military uh, dictatorship of what's called the Derg, what was led by Abengista Halemariam, Ethiopia was very much a unified state. If you said that you didn't want to be in Ethiopia, you were seen as a uh, uh, you know, that you were uh, you were a rebel, you were a traitor. But when the TPLF came to power in 1991, TPLF and its uh, coalition, the EPRDF, they create they, they uh, advanced a very different way of organizing Ethiopia. And rather than saying everybody's Ethiopian, well, that's not the right way to start that. So they said that there's it's it's natural and normal and appropriate for the Oromo to organize as Oromos and the Amhara to organize as Amharas. And what we should do is create ethnic states. So there's an Oromo state, a Tigray state, uh, and so on, and that those states will then uh, be uh, provide the kind of autonomy. Uh, the kind of protection so that the ethnicities will no longer feel discriminated against, will no longer feel uh, marginalized. And so that was the constitution that eventually they put in place in 1995. So Ethiopia, unlike most other places, unlike almost every other place in the world, the states are organized not on the basis of history or kind of randomness. I mean, you know, why do we have a South and a North Dakota in the United States? I mean, it's a, there's no long uh, you know, well, my my friends from the Dakotas aren't going to like that example, but that what they did is they say, okay, all of you Amhara, defined largely in language terms, all of you Amhara speakers, you are now in a state, the Amhara regional state, and the Amhara party will be your party, and and your government will be in Bahadar, and your schools will be in the Amhara language, and the courts will speak, you know, you can go to court in, in, in your native language, and so on and so on. And that was to give them the kind of autonomy that many wanted. Actually, the Amhara example there is not a very good one because the Amhara had long been a dominant. The Oromo one is better. Is that the Oromo for you know uh, centuries had been forced to go to school in the Amharic language, had been forced to go to court speaking uh, Amharic. Uh, you know, they were not allowed to publish newspapers in their own language. Under the EPRDF, they could do all of those things. They could educate their kids. I can't remember what the years were like, but like from K to four was all in the Oromo language, uh, you know, kindergarten to fourth grade. Then they began to learn uh, Amharic or, or English or, or other languages. Uh, and so that meant that those who felt that they were marginalized, at least culturally, they had a way of of, of finding a greater space within the EPRDF's ethno-federal uh, system. The problem with this, this model, many good things about it, uh, it lasted for, for quite some time, but the problem was is that there were always minority enclaves. So just, you know, so you would say, okay, this is the Oromo region, but there were lots of Amharas and Garages and others who lived within that region for various historical reasons. Uh, there were cities like Addis Ababa, most importantly, where a lot of people who had, you know, an Oromo mother, uh, an Amhara a grandfather, a Garagi grandfather, they saw themselves as Ethiopians. They didn't fit into this ethno-federalism because that was, ethnic was not their primary uh, identity. 
And then the final issue with that is while ethno-federalism or the idea that people largely lived in ethnic geographically defined uh, states, uh, that began to wind down in, you know, in the, let's say the, the 2010s as Ethiopia became uh, much more mobile, more people went to school, more people went to the cities to work. There were, began to be the beginnings of some uh, industrialization. And so if you want people from all across Ethiopia, the best engineers to go to such and such a place to work on the textile mills. But if you said the textile mill is in the um, the Sadama region, and they should all be Sadama there. So I mean, there's always going to be this contradiction of economic development in a model of politics that assumed that people didn't move. Because economic development means that people are moving. Ethiopia is urbanizing. People are working, you know, they're going to school. The roads are much better in Ethiopia than they used to be. And so the kind of static model of the early 1990s was increasingly out of step with uh, the realities of Ethiopian demography. There's a quotation on page 75 in your book, which appears at the opening of chapter four. You quote Mulugeta Gibrehiwat of the TPLF, who states as follows. It was like having a football team, a really good football team, suddenly transform into a basketball team. It did not go smoothly. Can you interpret and contextualize this quotation for us? Yeah, I, I like that quotation because it... Uh... It, it 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 to me it underlines this process of moving from being a victorious insurgent movement rebel movement to being a strong uh, political party uh, i mentioned earlier in this conversation that there, i think there's a lot of continuity there but there's also a lot of uh, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a bumpy process. It's it, it it's not a process that is automatic. When you have an organization that has long been organized under a military command and control, uh, highly disciplined, uh, you know, kind of military justice military administration and now they say okay all of you all of you guys who've been fighters for 10 years we now want you to be politicians and administrators well that's not really what they did not really what they knew how to do uh, not what they had done successfully they've been a very successful uh armed group but now they were being asked to be a very successful or very effective uh, political party in administrative state I actually think it, 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 the quote suggests that it did not go, what did he say, not go easily, it did not go smoothly, um, that the, 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 the rebel to party uh, transition went relatively effectively, let me put it that way, because um, the kind of benefits that this process had of, uh, of, of uh, hierarchy and include a cohesion within the winning insurgent group, which was now the ruling uh, political party, uh, helped uh, sort out those different roles. Uh, some very senior uh, military folks who had fought long in the in the struggle uh, were asked to give up their positions as generals in order to become. Uh, the minister for you know whatever for health or or the foreign affairs, uh, because the 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 party needed senior people in those other roles, and some of them did well, and and some still thought in military terms and maybe didn't do uh, as as well. 
so the process of turning a military into a political party is uh, is a challenge. I mean, organizationally, you're trying to move between two very different uh, organizations with two very different roles, the role to defeat the enemy and win versus the role to, uh, uh, you know, to govern, to to encourage, uh, uh, you know, peace and development are, are related, but are are different. Um, the the uh, and and so that's part of the trick or, or the challenge rather of this type of transition. And Mulugeta, who I quoted there, who was actually the head of the demobilization uh, commission uh, for the EPRDF, was in the middle of that. He was trying to, in addition to turning the victorious insurgents into a ruling party, there was a process of turning the the. Uh, victorious insurgents into a national army. So a lot of the TPLF people retired or moved into civilian roles. They recruited some people from outside of northern Ethiopia so that the army looked more like Ethiopia. You know, it wasn't a Tigrayan occupying army, but rather an army that had you know, plenty of Oromos and Walaitas and Sadamas and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and both of those transitions were uh, were challenging. Did it go well? I mean, I suppose it means uh, compared to what? I'll let Mulugeta make the judgment since he was in the middle of it. But uh, compared to other cases, for example, uh, you know, better than you might ex better than you might expect from comparative examples. As we bring today's dialogue to a close. Can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you been working on since? Yeah, I, I continue to be interested in Ethiopian politics. What has happened since this uh, book came out, this book is predominantly about the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. And as I mentioned briefly, or, or as almost as an aside, that party has now been uh, folded into what's called the Prosperity Party, uh, which is not a coalition with, uh, of, of, of different ethnic uh, parties, but is rather a, a party based on individual uh, membership. There's a new leadership under uh, uh, Romo, a leader named uh, Abiy Ahmed. He has a different ideological uh, point of view, a different way of explaining uh, what the Ethiopian uh, nation is. Uh, and has been engaged in some really fierce uh, internal wars, most recently or most deadly, I would say, uh, the civil war in Tigray, the northern region, the region that was so much of the story of this book, because that's where the political leadership of the EPRDF uh, came from. But I'm interested now, it, 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 I can sort of tell it this way, is that part of the story that I covered in this book was how a victorious insurgent group became an, uh, a, a powerful authoritarian party. Now I'm interested in how this powerful authoritarian party became whatever comes next, whatever this prosperity party is. It's a little hard to know right now. It's maybe too early to say. In some ways, it's the same. Some people will say that the ruling a prosperity party is really the EPRDF 2.0. It's just the EPRDF with some different you know, banners. It's the same people, the same kind of top-down uh, leadership. There's others who say that, no, this is a significant difference. Some would argue that it's a more democratic regime. It's, it's hard to tell in the midst of all of the conflict. But so in any event, the 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 you know I I continue to think of the puzzles of Ethiopian politics 
to reflect on the title of, of the book that we're talking about, but it's a new era uh that requires uh you know a different explanation i wish you the very best thank you it was great talking to you um, thank you for your time i would like to convey my utmost gratitude for your generous and erudite responses throughout the course of our conversation and dialogue and to thank you for all the investment and sacrifice that you put into this book project for the benefit of all your readers and all humanity. Oh, thank you. It's very generous. I, I, I enjoy doing it. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalet, your host today on the New Books in African Studies podcast. Today, it's been my honor to be in dialogue with Terence Lyons. We have been discussing his newly published book, the Puzzle of Ethiopian Politics, published in Boulder, Colorado by Lynn Reiner Publishers, 2019. Terence is professor at the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. Thank you wholeheartedly. And Terence, uh, I could not be more appreciative, more thankful, and more humbled. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure.